0: If you don't fully have a grasp on the meaning of the concept of dualism, before you begin listening to this message, go back and review what we said about dualism from the previous message. Or better yet, get a copy of Mere Christianity and study Lewis's chapter that I quote extensively from on the subject of dualism because I don't have time to continually reiterate the meaning of the word. With that, let me begin with a quote from that uh, text, from Lewis. Dualism does not work, but real Christianity goes much nearer to dualism than people realize. The New Testament talks about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death, disease, and sin. End quote. Now, in opposition to that clear and accurate statement, there is a phrase that we often hear in some Christian circles that goes like this. Well, the devil is merely God's hitman. Or they might say, well, the devil is God's devil. Now, what they mean by that as we all understand what is a hitman well it's someone who's who's hired by a high profile hypocrite so that the high profile hypocrite's image can maintain its false purity while the hitman does the dirty work in hopes that no one will connect the hitman with the high-profile hypocrite. Obviously, that will not work if you're talking about Almighty God and uh, the devil. Uh, What a blasphemous idea that uh, the devil is God's hitman or he's God's devil. If that's true, then it is right to refer to God's cancer or God's rapist or God's child torturer. So much in religious jargon is foolish on its face if we just stop and think about it. But saying that does not mean that God has an equal but opposite conflict with the devil. He is our adversary, but is he God's adversary? Does God have an equal opposite? As Lewis says in the quote above, The scriptures speak of a, quote, mighty evil spirit that is behind evil. We need to think with scriptural thoughts and speak with scriptural words. And the scriptures do not refer to Satan as God's devil, nor as a mere fallen angel, which gives place to silly and insipid concepts of a a pixie in white gowns and cupid wings, or in the devil's case, Bat wings and a red imp holding a pitchfork or wearing horns. Well, he's certainly not a God in that sense of the word. He's not God in that sense of the word, nor is he second to God. For God has no equal opposite, nor even a remote second. Because when we speak of God, we're speaking beyond any category that fits within the created order. So we're not left with any uh, concept of a second to God, as if God is a first and something else could be a second. Uh, We are not left with only two options, either God's devil or God's opponent. There must be a third way to define the conflict that does not dishonor God's character on the one hand, Or his power on the other? The creator cannot be placed in any rank or class that would make a second or third under him make any sense. How can any created thing be an opponent against the one who holds its existence in his hand? It's not a good example, but still may may be helpful. If we think of God as a page that a picture is drawn upon, the drawing simply cannot oppose the paper that it exists upon. That image may help a tiny bit to put our view of God and the devil in right perspective to each other, but it still falls way short because a tiny sketch of something may be accurate and still not be a complete picture. We will not, cannot form a complete picture picture from where we are now. We truly see through a glass darkly. But we will try this hour to examine what we do know. For the understandable question arises, so if God is the paper the devil is drawn on, who drew him that way and why? And whenever the devil acts for evil, is God simply painting with a dark brush stroke So if that is true, is God not still directly responsible for the evil? Then the devil is merely God's devil, God's hit man. So we're left with where we started. A battle over the question of whether God is truly good or just powerful. We do see, but through a glass darkly. And we see with a limited perspective from a limited angle. One part of the the church has seen God as all-powerful at the expense of his goodness and his love. Another part of the church, in reaction to that error, has seen God as perfectly loving, but at the expense of his power. In other words, God could do all things, so if he doesn't do good, it is because he sovereignly chooses not to do good and that would therefore make his choice against good good. Well, the other part of the church says in response to that, God is not capable of being anything less than good, than loving. So when evil occurs, it is because God is unable to stop it, though it may be something that is against his will. One part of the church has seemingly no trouble stating that God is not loving in order to preserve his sovereignty. Another part of the church has seemingly no trouble stating that God is absolute love. So evil happens because God cannot do anything about it due to his love which demands freedom of our will. Both statements contradict Scripture. Psalm 62, verse 11 and 12. I love the succinct way this verse sums up the issue. God has said it, and I have heard it more than once. The psalmist says that power belongs to God and also unfailing love. God is all power. God is all love. We want a clear, easy, black and white explanation of how this can be. I understand that because I have wrestled with it my entire adult life. But giving up one side for the other simply will not work. Not scripturally and not in real life. We offspring of the 21st century hate mystery. We want everything put before us in an easy formula. But there is mystery. Now, don't get confused when I say mystery and think I mean nonsense. I don't mean nonsense when I say mystery. It is nonsense to say that God is both love and that he also hates some people and wants them to suffer terribly forever. It is nonsense to say that God is sovereign, but our free will makes uh, God unable to do anything about it and some things God just has to give up. We're not embracing nonsense, either one of those positions of nonsense, but we are bowing to mystery. We can't even clearly determine facts about the physical universe, so how much less the invisible universe. Now, rather than pursue this question much farther, as if I'm going to give you a clear black and white answer after I've spent the opening moments telling you that there is no clear answer this side of eternity. I want to back away from that whole question for a moment and just look at the fact that we don't even know everything there is to know about the physical universe. So it's not likely we're going to understand everything we want to know about the invisible universe. And in order to uh, to illustrate this, I want to quote from science journalist Craig Berry who wrote for World Magazine concerning dark matter. And he says, quote, If you haven't taken a science course since high school or college decades ago, here's some news. We know a lot less about the basic makeup of the universe than we thought we did. Several decades ago, scientists knew the universe was expanding. They believed that expansion Had to slow down. No astronomer had observed such slowing, but it had to happen because the universe is full of matter, and matter has gravity, and gravity pulls things together. But in 1998, the Hubble Space Telescope let us look at various distant stars. It became apparent that the universe was expanding faster and faster not slower. Why? No one knew, but it seemed that something else we couldn't see or measure had to be present. Theorists named the the mystery stuff dark matter, possibly made up of some subatomic particles and dark energy, maybe made up of something else for which we have no name. To explain the behavior of what we observe through telescopes and other instruments, scientists now guesstimate that dark energy makes up 68% of the universe and dark matter makes up 27%. That adds up to 95%, which means we can see or measure only 5% of reality. A humbling number. Scientists can't see or measure any of it, but they believe it exists because of its effect on what they can see and measure. End quote. Now of course, I'm not suggesting that this dark energy is the devil. It only illustrates just how much we do see through a glass darkly. We can see there is goodness. We can see there is evil. We can see that against all odds, goodness survives even the worst onslaughts of evil. Why God allows this war, we don't fully understand. One day we will. The fact that we have to wait for that understanding is a test of our endurance. A test of our endurance is partly what helps develop us as moral beings, God evidently wants us to develop that way. Now get used to not knowing everything, is uh, if you haven't already, but let's wrestle with what we do know and what we can know. And and that is this there is a spiritual dark power in the universe. It is not supreme, it was not created as evil. For, quote, created evil, end quote, is an oxymoron. That which is created is that which has substance or being. And evil is the anti-matter of created matter. So to speak of created evil is to say nothing. It was created good and turned evil. We don't know fully why. We don't know fully how. We are at war with it. It is a real power that is at war against us. It is godlike when compared to any other created being we know about. It is much more accurate and therefore more helpful in keeping us vigilant to see Satan as a quote god End quote, rather than merely as a, quote, fallen angel, end quote. And this is how the Bible refers to him and to his armies. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 refers to him as the God, little g, of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Jesus refers to Satan in John chapter 12 as the prince of this world. Ephesians chapter 6 refers to ruling powers and principalities of this present darkness. 1 John 5.19 says the whole cosmos lies in the hands of the wicked one. When Satan appears to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, to tempt him uh, in the the temptation confrontation. Satan says to Jesus as he shows him all the nations of the world, quote, all these nations are mine and I will give them to you if you will worship me. And Jesus does not call him a liar, though he is a liar In another context, he's not lying here. So let's try to put all this together in a a way that we can maybe digest a little bit. We affirm that God alone is sovereign. That he alone is the power behind all that exists. God therefore created the angelic order, which includes Lucifer, Satan, and all the powers of darkness that are connected to it. But because God is himself holy, he could not have possibly created them to be evil. They therefore had to become evil. God's sovereignty gives limited freedom to both men and angels, and that includes freedom to rebel. God is evidently planning far more ahead than we can see. So we must only consider what we can see now. His plan for the angels is different than for that of humans, evidently, but that's too large a subject for us to examine for now. The earth is beautiful, wonderful, and our home. The earth is ugly, confusing, and alien, and we don't feel at home in it. Both of these are true. Its images of beauty marred and order destroyed causes the earth to look like a war zone. The earth looks like a war zone because it is. We are at war. Though God can use his brute force to stop anything, he does not. Just because a thing occurs which God says he hates does not mean that God secretly affirms it as in some silly theologies of the past. Nor does it mean that some things happen which are not God's will but God just has nothing he can do about it. That, does, that Neither one of those is true. So the earth is a war zone because we are at war. When you live in a war zone, it's best to face that fact so that you can live accordingly and function inside those perimeters. Scripture tells us two pictures of reality. If taken apart from each other, they do not tell us a clear, complete story. But together they give us a greater, more accurate view, though we still only see through a glass darkly. One side tells us God is the sovereign ruler of all and cannot be resisted. The other side says God's will is often resisted. The logical conclusion is that God allows resistance because he has an eventual purpose that demands this level of freedom. This is God's wisdom. God has the ability to recover and even make far greater whatever misuse of freedom has ruined. This is God's power. God has the aim of eventually doing what we cannot even imagine, making the entire universe fully free and fully pure. This is God's love. What he plans to accomplish cannot be stopped. It will occur. God is sovereign. His will cannot be resisted. The darkness, disease, devastation, and death we encounter now is evidently not in God's long-term plan, for such stuff is impossible to be within His will, for He is love and light and health and order and life, and He cannot produce evil. Therefore, it is reasonable to believe that this present horror we see played out so often on earth is due to evil activity that is in rebellion against God. How and why it came to be, we can maybe guess at, which would take us too far away from our present subject. But we know that God allows it in order to eventually destroy it. Our short-term view, our limited ability to see beyond our human earthly sphere, makes it difficult for us to think in terms that would provide a better perspective, especially when it is our part of the world that is deeply suffering. Our understanding is limited by our finite weakness, but that too is seemingly a necessary ingredient in the process we're in. The cross and the resurrection tells us what we need to know to keep us able to bear up until eventually we, along with our entire world, will be transformed into beings fitted for living in a recreated realm that is beyond evil. This is not healing. It is transformation. Beyond merely putting things right. What God must allow on a cosmic level, he also must allow in our personal lives. Why do we suffer so? Why doesn't God just fix us, change us, set us free? Because God must do two things at once. He must fulfill his eternal predestined plan for the universe, which includes you and me without turning us into robots. So in order to accomplish this, he must allow a long, long, to us anyway, process, which makes room for our choosing his will without destroying our wills. God will, quote, give us a new heart, but we must want him to give it to us, He must make circumstances and oversee those circumstances which draw us to that place where we can, where he can then help us both to will and to do his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. I used to read these verses when I was struggling against the evil in my own life and beg God to quote, just do what you promised. Give me a totally new heart. I did not know that the process of suffering I was in was doing just what I was praying for. I thought giving me a new heart was some instant miraculous fiat on his part. If I had just looked around me at the complexity of creation, I could have gotten a clue of how God works. He does not draw a picture of a universe. He forms one. Which is complex at the microscopic to the macroscopic level. So, he also does that same kind of work in giving me a new heart. Not by turning me into a pre programmed stick figure, but by working in me and in my realm of existence in order to slowly but surely help me freely choose. What he has predestined to be. This is how we can know that once he is finished, there will be no chance of a future recreation of this scenario of sin, death, destruction, and devastation. For the very idea of sin will not have a place to land in our thinking. Not because we are controlled, but because we are so free that we have embraced him and become united with him and are simply beyond being tempted, much less being seduced by evil ever again. Please get the difference in what I'm saying here. God does not do evil so good can come out of it. God decrees freedom. Such freedom makes way for wrong to be chosen. He must then allow for and endure that evil. Then with his power he moves, with his wisdom he molds, and with his love he accomplishes whatever it takes to reach ultimate good, and scriptures reveal that it will be a far, far greater good than what was previously that was lost. That is not the same as making bad things happen so greater good may come from it. That is not the same thing as everything happens for a reason. But it certainly does affirm that when all is said and done, God is in control and all things will be worked out together for our ultimate good. But it is actually an aside to pursue the question of how God deals with us individually, though That's always in the mix, and we are always interested in that. But what we want to firmly establish in this hour together is the truth that we are currently at war. That means we have a real enemy who really is at odds with God, and because he cannot reach God, he attacks God's image, which is us. He is not God's opposite, for God has no opposite But he is in opposition to God's created order, and we are the treasured pinnacle of that order. God loves man. Evil cannot attack God, so it attacks what God loves and seeks to mar us, God's image. When we speak of evil, we're not speaking of mere wrong. I want you to get this if you don't get anything else I say. Right and wrong are human issues we deal with as moral beings. When we speak of evil, we're not speaking of right versus wrong. We're speaking of something much darker. For instance, we would not refer to Nazi torture or the ISIS slaughter of innocents as merely wrong. People Human beings make up the world of laws and civilizations which determine what among them may be considered right or wrong. For instance, in Switzerland, it's wrong for a a man to open the door for a woman and let her walk in first. Why? Because culturally, for years, a man always walked into a a room first, uh, so if somebody was throwing something, it would hit the man instead of the woman. (laughs) All kinds of right and wrong concepts can be warped and woofed in the cultural structure of a situation. Wrong implies a deed that may be turned from and even corrected, where at times there might even be reparation that's possible when we talk about right or wrong. Not always, but mostly. Wrong is not mysterious in that sense. But when we speak of evil, evil suggests a mysterious force that may be in business for itself and may exploit human agency as part of a larger cosmic conflict between good and evil, God and Satan, to quote Lance Morrow from his book called Evil. This is not to say that humans cannot generate evil, or non-supernatural wrongdoing. But even in such merely human cases, another power is behind the human darkness. And we're foolish if we do not fully embrace that truth as clearly as Scripture embraces it. Yet, the Western Church of the past several centuries has done just that. And even worse, has weaved a twisted, Even blasphemous theology that while ignoring the devil and supernatural evil makes God the only source of every evil event. Think for instance of insurance companies using the phrase quote, an act of God when referring to destructive weather events or accidents. This kind of schizophrenic theology has sent an obviously confusing message one that naturally causes many unbelievers to totally reject Christianity. For most of my lifetime, our cultural religious milieu influenced non-believers to respectfully remain silent in the face of concepts many Christians put forth as fact. They certainly hated those ideas, but out of a common cultural respect for religion, quote-unquote, They refrained from open ridicule. Now, there are notable exceptions, but until recently, those exceptions were few and didn't hold much cultural weight. But in the past few years, that has all changed. This reversal of cultural mores has opened a floodgate of criticism for Christian thinking. The Christian culture has reeled under the force of this resistance and many times lamented the whole situation as proof of the end of the age and the approaching hooves of the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the mark of the beast and so forth. And some of that may be true. But for the most part, this reversal of Christian cultural supremacy that made bad doctrine sacrosanct is really a good thing. For, first, it dethrones false ideas of God that for centuries have been unquestioned. Second, it forces the church to think through what it has previously, merely, and I might add lazily taken for granted. And third, this forcing of a re-examination of our belief systems is making us step outside our safe Christian ghettos and engage our world directly, making us put up or shut up. Now, how can that be a bad thing? It sounds like maybe God is behind it more than the devil. Well, in closing, the question is this. How does all this relate to prayer? Remember, that's what we originally began this entire study uh, examining, is the, the question of prayer. So let's review what we've said so far as it relates to our original issue of prayer. If you recall, this entire line of thought was related to the question, if God is sovereign, and God knows everything, and God can do anything, why should we pray? And also along with that, why should we engage others to pray with us on behalf of any situation? as if God is influenced by an increase of numbers. Remember those questions? Those questions took us into questions that sought to examine the entire scenario of creation, the universe, the mystery of evil and suffering, and spiritual warfare. This has brought us to our present short examination of the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign and good, Why is there war in the universe? Well, we do not fully know. So what we do know is this. God intends to eventually destroy all evil. His nature says so. The cross says so. The scriptures say so. The cry of the human heart says so. He intends to raise up a family of sons and daughters under his love and wisdom who become like him and who will reign and rule with him in the universe to come. That dual process, the destruction of evil and the raising up of sons and daughters, is accomplished, among other things, through the training of prayer. We do not pray to inform God. We do not pray to move God. We do not pray to change God's mind. We unite with God in his desires and then pray those desires into the earth. This is used by the Holy Spirit to confuse and thwart the work of the enemy, to train us in compassion, perseverance, and faith, and helps move the world closer to the final day when the kingdom will fully come, bringing an end to the war and to all evil. This is what is happening, whether we are praying for the suffering church in China, or for the grace to suffer the bad attitude of our next-door neighbor, who won't keep their garbage can under control. Nothing is wasted in this training. Everything is useful for the ultimate outcome. No wonder there's a strange spiritual resistance to you whenever you consider any form of prayer. The moment you begin to actually pray, not so much think about prayer, but the moment you actually begin to pray, at that moment, great issues for good are being moved into position for you and for those you pray for. I've used a phrase repeatedly in this message that we see through a glass darkly. This is taken, of course, from Paul's love letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, if the Apostle Paul, who understood great issues so far above us that He says of himself that because of the revelations he had received, he was allowed to be oppressed by a, quote, messenger of Satan who was sent to buffet him in order to keep him from becoming puffed up. If Paul had to be buffeted by a a messenger of Satan to protect him from arrogance, because of the great revelations that he saw, and yet Paul refers to himself as still seeing through a glass darkly, then what does that say about us? We read Paul's letters. We don't fully understand everything we read. Paul obviously is excited about things that he can't even put in words, so much so that he invents new Greek words to say that it's Uh, uh, beyond anything he can think or imagine or verbalize uh, that that he sees coming. Yet he says he sees through a glass darkly. Well, we see through a glass darkly also. One day we will know everything we want to know. But what we do know is enough to get us moving forward. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ was the decisive blow against all evil. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is the guarantee that the decisive blow will eventually become fulfilled. So we move forward into the war, trusting in the cross, waiting for the resurrection. With that truth In front of us, we enter into the war ahead of us. We rest in both the sovereignty and the character of God. In other words, we know God can do all things, and we know God will do all that is right and good. The thin veneer of civilization provided by Western Christendom is now collapsing. Everything we have relied on culturally to maintain some semblance of order and sanity is being shaken, as Hebrews chapter 12 tells us it will be. As we stated previously, as frightening as that may be to some of us, it's a good thing in the long run. For this loss of civil religion and its accompaniments like sexual mores and public civility and honor of the sacred and respect for tradition, demands of the people of God that we enter the battle for truth with more than just mere dogma and traditionalism as a weapon. We must become the body of Christ, for real. We must be the incarnate presence of God in a godless culture this means we must engage with the supernatural on levels we have not done before prayer is our only bridge between the invisible real and the visible the, the visible increasing darkness that surrounds us both human and demonic we need wisdom beyond mere common sense in order to be able to address the level of insanity that people are now manifesting Counseling, therapy, and pastoral care is simply not enough. There's not enough fingers to put in all the holes that are bursting through the dikes of civilization. We need miracles. Diseases we once defeated are coming back along with truckloads of foreign infections pouring in over our collapsing borders. We need power to communicate the transforming gospel to refugees as well as godless citizens unreached by our previously powerless, civil, religious pop culture. We are now fully engaged in the front lines of battle for the souls of this generation. We are not heading there. We are fully there. There has never been a greater manifestation of the real church in action in our lifetime or previous generations as we're seeing begin to arise now. But as encouraging as that is it's not nearly enough. And Jesus told us what to do in the face of such a time as this. Luke chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. By the way, if reading Luke 10 Also, along with that, read Matthew 10 for a full background picture of what's going on with these verses. Now, here's a good example of our engagement with God in order to fulfill his will for our world. Why do we pray for him to do what he wants done anyway? We pray to him in cooperation with him to fulfill for him What he has predestined will eventually happen anyway. Here we see how predestination and free will become one and the same thing. What happens when we pray like this? God, the Lord of the harvest, begins to set in motion events in people's lives that will stir them into position to take action they would not have taken if we had not asked God to do that. See? The eventual predestination, the will of God, will come to pass whether we participate in it or not. But when we pray, we get involved in a way that makes us partner with him in its fulfillment. But when we pray, uh, we have to decide whether we're going to do that or not. And that's that's the free will and the end of it. This will this willful participation in a, on our part sets in motion good things that would not happen if we did not pray them into existence. Now this destroys the demonically engineered lie that keeps us out of prayer, and makes life an unfulfilled blob of meaningless, formless potential that does not ever become anything. Prayer sets in motion forces which cause potential good to become enacted, real, functional good. Did you get what I'm saying? Potential good is meaningless if it's not set in motion, set in action. That's what Jesus is saying when he simply says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. He's saying, take the potential uh, treasure and turn it into real functional treasure for your life, for the lives of those you care about. Now, what what else does he say? He says, I send you as lambs among wolves. When you go into the harvest, expect resistance, expect warfare, expect conflict. I send you as lambs among wolves, verse 17 of Luke Luke 2. The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us through your name. The conflict is between two kingdoms, the invisible kingdom of God and the invisible kingdom of darkness, a demonically twisted interpretation of Scripture that rejected the supernatural worldview of Scripture Eventually produced a strange mixture of evangelical truth mixed with colonialistic, imperialistic lies. This not only adulterated the spreading of the gospel with white supremacist greed and nationalistic arrogance, but also blinded much of the church from the clear direct connection that exists between the sending of laborers into the harvest and the confrontation believers will have with evil spirits and all their works. The spreading of the kingdom of God is the casting out of the other kingdom. In Luke chapter 11 verse 20, Jesus says, Clearly, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So for us to fulfill the command of Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, which is just a continuation of what we just read in Luke chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 10, uh, we reject any silly idea, demonic idea, that Luke 10 and Matthew 10 was a special dispensation only for those to whom Jesus was speaking and that has no connection to uh, Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. We read Luke 10, Matthew 10, and Matthew 28 all as connecting to the same commandment. So we're we're to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And, And how do you make disciples of all the nations? Will you teach them to observe all things that Jesus commanded us? So there's a direct conflict, therefore, between the truth of the kingdom that has to be communicated to people who don't know it, and the lies of the previous demonic kingdom that's that's being displaced. And therefore, since there's a conflict between the truth of the kingdom, and the lies of the false kingdom. We must be prepared to engage that conflict on several levels. Let me just mention those levels here, in our closing moments together, uh, and we will we will go into much more detail, Lord willing, in our coming uh, sessions. But first of all, we we confront the demonic in people. Now we don't confront the demonic by uh, treating people like demons. We treat people like people. We love them and uh, sometimes in loving them that exposes a kind of darkness that's dwelling in them that we have to confront. Now uh, we we could spend a whole session here on just personal ministry to people where the demonic is concerned. I don't want to do that. Obviously we don't have time, but that's not, that's not my main point. There is a, there is a problem we, we can get into if we start focusing merely on the demonic in people. Sometimes the demon, not always, but sometimes the demonic in people are being manifested because the, the people live in a network of demonic activity. So confronting the person is not enough you've got to deal with the entire network. Uh not always sometimes it is just an individual person but we we can get so focused on individual demonic activity that we get I think the charismatic movement for years has made this mistake. We we've gotten so focused on individual deliverance and individual freedom and individual happiness. As important as that is that we've made the demonic almost some kind of local sideshow without an understanding of the of the great emmeshment of the demonic in our entire culture, and the devil doesn't mind getting us focused on individual local issues if it will keep us from having a larger more more biblical understanding of the fact that the demonic uh, reaches up into uh, higher realms that we call principalities and powers, and that deals with uh, culture on a higher level. If the devil can get you just focused on individual ministry to people without dealing with the enculturated darkness that maybe brought those people into the bondage they're in, that he doesn't mind giving up one or two foot soldiers, if he can keep his air force, so to speak. But the demonic in people, the demonic in cultures and neighborhoods, the satanic in cultural systems, which I just referred to, the satanic in business, the satanic in entertainment the satanic in culture or government or religion, all these systems of the world. You can't confront uh, the warfare that is brought into play when the kingdom of God is being preached and being manifested unless you're willing to see the demonic and the evil uh, on all these levels if you just look, focus on uh, individuals, you you missed the point. Well, that's an introductory idea. I barely have time to, to put that in your thinking. Then there's there's one more element that I want to mention, and that is the satanic, not just in people, not just in cultures, not just in neighborhoods, not just in cultural systems, but the satanic in nature. Uh, As we approach the end of the age, there is now being manifested and will continue to be manifested a greater degree of confusion in the atmosphere that manifests itself as destructive forces of nature. Uh, We will talk more about that, Lord willing, in sessions to come. But I'm, I'm just, I want to put all of this in your thinking in the closing time that we have together. Uh, that, that as we get serious about obeying the Lord Jesus Christ in the penetration of the world around us with the message of the gospel of the kingdom, we can expect conflict because there's another kingdom coming that is supplanting the dark kingdom that assumes its right to be where it is. It's lost its right to be where it is ever since Calvary. And wherever God's people take that message seriously, there is a displacement of ensconced evil and a raising up of the purposes of God. That's why we were told in the Lord's Prayer that we should pray regularly, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that prayer is just as regular as uh, the rest of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We pray that daily. We also pray for the displacement of evil and the coming manifestation of the kingdom. We, We pray for that daily. Well, Father, I pray for every man and woman joining with me in this teaching that we will, even though we've seriously been seeking you the best we know how, I pray Father that every one of us myself included will become more awake, more committed more available to you, more focused on what matters to you uh, less easily distracted by the cares of the world and the demands of everyday life as obviously necessary as that is that we would rise above those daily concerns and become more and more people of the kingdom, people who are focused on seeing the fulfillment of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you are going to fulfill every promise. Eventually, soon, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, because they already are. He did that at Calvary. We pray, Father, for the cleanup to take place as swiftly as possible. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you're, you're coming soon. In the meantime, thank you also that you care about our individual struggles. They matter to you. But help us, Lord, have a wider and greater vision for our purpose in life than just our own private struggles and our own private needs that we would be people who live uh, in reality in both worlds both our daily individual world and uh, in, in with a larger vision of the kingdom coming in the all, all the earth uh, that, that way Lord we, we really do care about those that are in bonds we care about and, and, and join in prayer for those that are suffering, uh, half a world away from us, who culturally are so far removed from us that we can't relate to, to them. And yet we are literally brother and sister to them. And we pray, Father, that we will not hear the headlines or read the headlines and slough it off and go about our American or Western, uh, selfish lives but that we will enter into their suffering as if we were in bonds with them, Lord, so that by our joining together we might increase the flow of your kingdom power in such a way that it eventually breaks the yoke off North Korea, breaks the yoke off the Sudan, breaks the yoke off China, breaks the yoke everywhere in the world so that all the kingdoms will come and bow at your feet. Lord, thank you that we can participate with, these, with you in these things. Thank you, Father, for your word, your spirit, your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.